we don't we don't really honor how to go through this process um, or how to support others. And so really having those sort of conversations and learning grief as a skill set, the way that we would learn mindfulness as a practice or as a skill set, I think is really important. Welcome to the Beside Project, an exploration of where the end of life and Judaism intersect. My name is Sarit, and I'm out to uncover what wisdom and rituals Judaism provides for the dying, for the people caring for the dying, and for what comes next. My name is Amelia Zivotovskaya, and I'm the CEO and founder of the Flourishing Center. We're based in New York City on the Upper West Side, but offer training programs all over the world. And I started the Flourishing Center in 2008. And since then, we have focused on training the change agents of the world in positive psychology, teaching people how to utilize positive psychology and mind-body medicine skills and tools professionally. We've trained over 1,500 practitioners in over 53 countries, and we specialize particularly in teaching people how to teach positive psychology to others in the form of resilience training and happiness and well-being programs. We train coaches and consultants to utilize positive psychology with organizations and basically focus on how to help people spread the science and actually apply the science professionally into their life. Amelia and I met through a mutual connection who knew that both Amelia's personal story and her professional work would make for an incredible interview. Spoiler, they were right. Before I met Amelia for the first time, I really didn't know about positive psychology. And maybe that's you too. It turns out it's in part an interesting and powerful lens through which to approach life. I'll let Amelia share more. It's a field that started in 1998, and it was based on the idea that traditional psychology, while well-meaning, had focused its efforts on the scientific study of ill-being or illness in that it focused on how do you treat or get rid of things that are hurting or getting in the way of a person's health and well-being. And it was based on the thought that if a person was anxious or if a person was depressed, and if you treated whatever it is that was hurting or harming them, that by definition, you would then have a person who is happy and able to function well in the world. And then positive psychology over time through lots of different studies that had been coming out began to identify that mental health and mental illness are not opposites. And that just because a person doesn't have mental illness or is maybe being treated for their mental illness doesn't mean that they actually have the skills and tools of mental health. And so scientists at the time hadn't really bothered studying things like happiness and gratitude and hope and strengths and meaning and purpose in life and things that just weren't studied that could be studied that could help your everyday person increase their own well-being. And so the field started in 1998 and I got to study with the founder of the field in 2006 where I did my master's in positive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania and have since then been focused on translating that science and helping people learn to use it. And so it's the type of things that maybe would be practiced or taught in self-help books or um, kind of personal development classes. And it's bringing those types of topics into a scientific space where experiments are being done, um, literature reviews are being conducted, and it's being treated as its own empirical approach. 
you can hear that Amelia is no stranger to speaking publicly. Her stories are conveyed without hesitation and with passion for her work. At this point, I could have asked a million more questions about positive psychology, and I did. But before we went deeper on that, I learned from Amelia about her experience growing up with Judaism. I was born in Kiev, Ukraine, and at the time it was during a time of communism and the fall of the USSR. And so my family, while feeling very proud of being Jewish, weren't able to practice Judaism. And while my great-grandfather was a rabbi, uh, the types of practices that were happening in Kiev, Ukraine, or at least in, in my understanding of it at the time, were very underground. They were very hush-hush. And so synagogues would be in people's homes and things would sort of happen in a way that uh, needed to be kept secretive. And so I wasn't raised with Jewish practices as much as I was just raised with this understanding that we are Jewish. And when we immigrated to America, it was like, great news. We can be free now. We can be free to practice Judaism, but didn't really have any understanding of what that meant. Um, if anything, the what I, what I experienced Judaism to be when I was five years old was that in Russia around New Year's, New Year's Eve, uh, we would have we would have celebrations that are very similar to what would be considered Christmas practices uh, by, by within the Christian tradition, the Catholic tradition, in that we would have a clause, but it would be a New Year's clause, which would be this, you know, old man with a gray beard and dressed in red that would come and bring presents on December 31st into the new year. And we would have a tree with ornaments and we'd have we'd have gifts and stuff like that and my family immigrated to America in November and so when it was like time for the New Year's tree or for my holiday bush, as we would call it, my parents were like, well, you know, we, we don't have a tree anymore because, you know, we're in America now. We can be Jewish and Jewish people don't put up trees. And instead they put up a menorah. And it was like, oh, well, that's not nearly as fun as my my tree was, but okay. You know, um, so it actually was a little bit of a letdown, like whatever this thing called being Jewish is, I, I kind of wanted to go back to my, my tree and my presence actually. But um, so, so uh, yeah. And so I wasn't really raised with much formal Jewish practice. My, my family as Russian Jewish would gather for um, high holidays in celebration in forms of like having a meal together, gathering the family, having lots of courses, lots of food, lots of vodka. Um, but very rarely was it like read prayers or go to synagogue. Um, and I actually started my first career before I came to positive psychology, started when I was 14. Um, and I started as a bar and bat mitzvah dancer, as an entertainer, which is kind of funny because I was like only 14 and entertaining people's like 12 and 13 year old birthday parties. I just happened to look older and was very peppy and zestful and was able to like energize a crowd with dancing. So I, you know, I attended a lot of bar and bat mitzvahs and I entertained a lot of bar and bat mitzvahs. And I grew up in, um, you know, when we, when we immigrated, we first came to, to, um, Brooklyn, like many Jews do. And then my family moved out to Oceanside, which is a very Jewish, uh, highly Jewish area. And so I went from kind of 
not really having much exposure to more formal Jewish practices to suddenly being in school with like kids who went to Hebrew school, kids who learned how to read the Torah. And so it was like time to get bat mitzvah. Like, you know, Russian people would have just thrown a party. Like that was your bat mitzvah. And I was like, oh, that's not real, quote unquote. Um, And so I just sort of said, if I can't have a real bat mitzvah, then I didn't want one at all because I was, you know, attending other people's. And while it wasn't like their full ceremony, I just sort of knew that there was a lot more that I was, I was missing. Like Amelia, I grew up on Long Island, and while she was dancing at the B'nai Mitzvah celebrations, I was at the same parties, passing out hors d'oeuvres and refilling pictures of Shirley Temples for the kids' table. For young teens, these years are important for growth and self-discovery. But for Amelia, it was also marked with a deep tragedy. Um, My brother passed away when I was 14, so 14 was like this pivotal time for me where I started my first career that lasted me 12 years, which was kind of out there to like be a professional dancer. Um, And my brother passed away in an accident. He was swimming at night with his fiance and some friends and his fiance started drowning. And so my brother ran in to try to rescue her and she survived, but he passed away. And that was like my first real, um, close, uh, super close. Like my uncle had passed away beforehand, but it wasn't so close to home. Uh, It was my first real experience of grief and death and trauma. And I felt for a little bit that like all of a sudden my parents wanted to be Jewish or like more Jewish, (laughs) Um, you know, between like burying him in a Jewish, in a Jewish cemetery or sitting Shiva or like certain prayers that would be recited in, in memory. And I just sort of remember being like, well, that's kind of weird that we're doing all these things all of a sudden. Um, and that I, and so it felt, it just felt a little like forced, uh, but I also really uh, understood that my parents were probably longing for something to belong to and something to believe in. Um, and so I had that kind of exposure to, to Judaism around that time as well. But again, it was very surfacey, And I felt like I found my own way through high school and college to spirituality and studied more Eastern traditions like Buddhism and Hinduism and eventually found tantric philosophy as the one that seemed to be most aligned with my belief systems and my outlook on life and how I wanted to kind of show up in the world and appreciated Judaism as like the gift I was given by my parents, um, but didn't really have much practice. So around 2012, an organization called Rabbis Without Borders had reached out to me to invite me to come and do some training programs for their rabbis in training that were going through this um, program where they they wanted to offer them continuing education and were really curious about the intersection between positive psychology science and Jewish practices. And so that was my sort of, I would say, come homecoming to Judaism because I had been so involved in the science and so involved in my own practice that I didn't really stop to sort of think about how there are there, there was such a strong intersection between what positive psychology has identified through science and what the Torah and what, um, what Jewish practices have been encouraging people to do by way of living a good life and, and 
teaching how to be and how to live in the world. And so I would sit down with, uh, you know, Rabbi Irwin Kula, who's like the rabbi to the rabbis, and we would just sort of brainstorm together. And I would share the science and he would say, well, we have a practice for this and we have a practice for that. And I would talk about the importance of mindfulness. And he's like, you know, we've got mindfulness practices such as kissing the mezuzah to like separate out the old world from the new world so that you can be more present with your day-to-day life rather than just, you know, walking into your home that you can create more separation. And we talked to him about gratitude practices and we talk about all the different gratitude prayers that exist within Judaism. And so it was just this kind of homecoming to feeling more connected to my roots um, because I was, because I had established myself as a positive psychology and well-being expert and suddenly looking at so many elements of this uh, religion that I felt um, a strong identity to and didn't realize like, yeah, like here's this whole religion really gathered around building people's well-being. I just hadn't been seeing it in that way because it just hadn't been part of my upbringing. It was interesting to hear about Amelia's return to Judaism as an adult. And I was curious how and if those seeds were planted with her parents' return to Judaism when she was a teenager. Her answer wove from those early years into a story of loss, as you'll hear. And Amelia's story is an example of how our memories are connected, and that the edges of where one story ends and one begins might lack a clear divide. And what is this podcast if it's not to embrace the parts of ourselves that live in that space? And so when my brother passed away, my parents did take on some some rituals um, that they that they did both for themselves and then for us as a family. So for the first couple of um, first couple of years after my brother died, while both observing the statement uh, that, that I think the Jewish practice where you're not supposed to go to the cemetery for X period of time. After that, my mother would frequently go to the cemetery and she would adorn my brother's gravesite with lots of flowers and plastic flowers that would like, you know, over time get, um, get, get uncolored. But there's this element of like preserving his youth that I felt like she felt or she found in making his, his gravesite beautiful. Um, and so her and my father would, would do this regularly as a practice, like take care of the gravesite. Um, and from a positive psychology perspective, I think of it as like kind of giving her some sort of control or some sort of autonomy or something that she could actually do rather than just sort of feel like there's nothing I can do for my son anymore for the rest of my life type of a feeling. Um, and then there were some practices around just lighting the candles and, um, and saying the Yurtzeit candle and being able to recite the prayers. And some of those began to fizzle out over time and they weren't so monthly and they remained as annual practices for my, uh, for, for my brother. And then after my brother passed away, my mother got diagnosed with ovarian cancer about two years after he had passed. And she battled that for 10 years, which at the time is pretty unheard of because ovarian cancer tended to be something that if a person was diagnosed with it, they went rather went pretty quickly. And so my mom's was really unique. Um, I felt strongly that it was probably tied to the stress of my brother's death. And so she she battled that for a long time. And then when she passed, um, you know, I think certain certain rituals um, changed for for my family. I think my father still very much 
would light the the annual candle. Um, and I think I found my own pathways to things that made me feel connected for the time that I needed. In fact, I just picked one of them back up. Like I used to um, write, write letters to my mother in a journal, um, even though she had passed just sort of wanting to keep her, her, the connection to her spirit by being able to process some of the things I was going through on a daily that I would have turned to her for love and support to, I would write in my journal about it. Um. Yeah, and then just just to finish off the story on my relationship to to death and grieving, um, most recently, then my father uh, passed away of COVID on March 30th in 2020, um, and that was another interesting connection to death and grieving and that I got to experience um, my brother's death, which was sort of an accident. Nobody saw it coming. It was just complete you know, ground uh, fall from underneath you and just life shatters in that moment because it truly was an accident um, to my mother's passing, which was the last three years in particular were very slow, drawn out, painful dying process where we eventually did have her in hospice and we knew that we were getting close and um, that sort of waiting process of hospice care and not being by her side when she passed. Whereas my father's experience was, you know, we, we knew COVID was a threat. He was told me he was going to stay in and not go out. Uh, he decided to be stubborn and, and go out anyway and uh, called him on a Thursday, heard that he was having difficulty breathing, got there by Friday, and he passed with me by his side on Monday. Um, so within just a very short period of time, got to go with him through that transition process. Um, so I really feel like I've gotten uh, an interesting variety of some of the experiences that people might go through when they're experiencing grief and loss. Amelia's work has her in a public facing role, training, gathering, and holding space. When COVID hit, Amelia had leapt into action. Knowing this, I asked about how she navigated the public side of things when her father died. Yeah, when the pandemic first started, I started rallying the people that I've trained over the years in positive psychology and turned to our practitioners and sort of had this call to action of what if all of that was, was for this? What if all of that training, what if all of those books, all of those classes that you attended was to help prepare you and us to help others get through this time where well-being was going to be so important and our well-being was so at risk and resilience skills were already needed because of how people were coping and functioning with daily life and then throw a pandemic into the into the mix and so I started offering workshops and courses and just trying to basically offer anything I could to help people cope through this, including doing training programs um, for people on how to use Zoom and how to take what would have been in-person experiences and like translate them into online online experiences. And I just felt like it wasn't enough to even do these like one-off workshops or webinars. People really were, were um, nose diving in their well-being by being on lockdown. And so I got this you know, vision to create a program that I was calling Better Than Before COVID-19. And uh, the call to action was, what if we would 
all gather for 30 days. And in that 30 days, we would gather every day with holding a vision of committing to a better than before COVID version of yourself, where we would all focus on taking really good care of our mind and our body and our connections to other people. And I would teach them positive psychology skills. And just for an hour a day, we would all gather and sort of use it as like our our centering and our focal point to set up the rest of the day to basically get through it. And I framed it as a 30-day practice because I, from positive psychology perspective, was aware that the one of the hardest things about this pandemic was that people didn't know how long it was going to last. We didn't know, you know, if we're going to be locked down for six months, we're we going to be locked down for six days. Like how, how long will this last? Will this be six years? What's going to happen? And so in an attempt to basically give people some sense of certainty, we basically said, let's, let's play pretend in our brain and we can, you can get through anything if you give it a time frame. And I have done a quite a number of meditation retreats and juice fasts and other things where you're counting down the days until something is over and you're like, okay, I could, I could drink nothing but juice and water for 10 days, but I can count it down. And so I decided that doing it for this period of time would be a real helpful thing for people to have some sense of control and some in a container while also teaching them these skills. And so that program was supposed to start on Saturday and I got the call from my, uh, I called my dad on Thursday and heard that he was already showing signs of hypoxia. And so when I got there on Friday, I was sort of committed to running this program anyway. And it was just an hour a day on, on the computer. And so I kept working during that time and, and was holding space for others where at that time, the first program, and I, I actually ran eight of those 30-day programs. We're actually winding down another one right now. Um, that first one got over 600 people registered for it. And so a little over 100 people were showing up every day to Zoom, trusting that I would facilitate an experience with them. And one of my the ways that I show up in my work is I'm authentic about how I practice what I preach and that I need these skills as much as anybody else does. And so I was really open with my community um, about what I was going through. And literally my father was fighting for breath and life in the room right next to me as I was guiding people through some of these practices. And um and they, I showed up for them the day, the morning of my, when my dad passed and the next day for the funeral and really let them see me grieve actively and show them what I was doing to metabolize and, and feel my feelings. And one of the things I've known from all of these years of grieving my brother and my mother is that, um, it's so important to be able to fully feel your feelings. And when you fully feel your feelings, they don't last very long. You know, they last for a couple of minutes at a time and then, you know, kind of wish you could cry it all out, but like you can't. And so you just keep on, um, keep on keeping on. And so I basically allowed myself to be public in my, in my grief and in my process and was able to also hold space for others. I mean, at the time, it was so early in the pandemic for some people, they had not yet known anybody that had gotten the coronavirus, not to mention had passed of it. Um, I then had it for 
the couple of weeks and had to be heavily quarantined and was, you know, not able to, to leave and was the only person at my father's funeral and was kind of going through a lot of this socially distanced and not being able to hug someone and not able to kind of have some of the traditional comforts that we would have in place to support people during these sort of times. Um, so it was, it was a gift to me that I had this program in place while I was giving to others, they were wholeheartedly giving to me and I was allowing myself to be carried by them and, and tended to by them as well, because focusing on them gave me a lot of support in the process. Hearing how Amelia found herself grieving so publicly was initially heartbreaking. It felt immense that she had people relying on her to show up every day for nearly a month. And then I realized something. She was relying on them to show up to. When it comes to mourning a death and Judaism, you may have heard of Shiva, the seven-day mourning period following the death of a loved one. At the end of the seven days, the mourners traditionally get up from this initial mourning period, actually take a walk around the block, and plan to re-enter society. However, Judaism acknowledges that being ready for life again will take time. And once the initial intense first week is passed, a mourner transitions to a second stage of mourning called Shloshim, which is Hebrew for 30. Shloshim counts 30 days from the burial. And while its rituals are less intense than those of Shiva, like sitting low to the ground and tearing clothing, it offers another container with which to be in mourning such as not cutting one's hair and not attending social events. It tells the mourner that there's no rush. It occurred to me that Amelia had, in a way, observed Shloshim with the 30-day program she had created. Mourning is a time when it is so critical to be held by one's community. During COVID, so many people did not have that blessing, making their mourning journeys more complicated and more painful. Even though it wasn't the intention, Amelia grieved in a way that Judaism offers as a path from the initial pain of death. When Amelia said, you can get through anything if you give it a time frame, I found myself wondering how structure and framework in ritual Judaism intersects with positive psychology and how Amelia approaches the world. I think it kind of goes back to what I was saying with my my parents trying to find something that they could quote unquote do um, and that give you some sense of structure. One of the things that we know about anything that's traumatic in life is that it usually creates a break in your life. So whether it be, uh, and, and this could be, it could be traumatic events, but it's also major life events uh, that one of the things they do is they become chapters in your book. So the book of your life. So it could be my life before my brother died, my life after my brother died, the, you know, my life before the pandemic, my life after the pandemic, my life before I had babies, my life after I had babies. And so any of these life circumstances have this potential to, to break and break open our, our world. And so looking for some sense of stability or normality or structure can be really important during those times of chaos. And so I think having the structure of saying, really let yourself fully grieve for 10 days and then give yourself the permission to 
try to return to life. You know, you walk around the block, right? So we did that one, like where after sitting, you you walk around the block and you sort of reflect. I think that if people really let themselves and in, in, uh, engage in the wisdom of these practices is they try to create frameworks. And within those frameworks, ideally, you would not just go through the motions, you would follow the the wisdom of what's being offered as just a framework to try to cope with things. And it isn't linear. And sometimes the, the challenges is with Shiva is like, um, it's great when when those moments are happening, people are kind of stopping by and you have a lot of, lot of people around. And then I remind people that are helping and supporting others that are grieving, you know, don't, you know, definitely show up for a Shiva call, you know, be there, but also know that three months down the line, six months down the line might actually be when the person needs you even more. Cause in the beginning, there's a lot of people around and then we don't, you know, like we can have like the one month mark and the one year mark, but it's, um, it's, it's important to know that I think people will continue to need that level of support, but it's like, well, but putting in like the bare bones of, um, of structure, it helps create more soothing for the brain. And if the brain is a meaning-making machine and it's trying to constantly identify, you know, why is this happening and why is that happening? And one of the benefits of spirituality and religion is that it actually creates stories and creates um, uh, context for what would otherwise be the unknowns of life and sort of gives explanations for the unknowns of life and gives you something to hold on to and and grasp onto. So without that, we would sort of feel like we're just free flowing a little bit or or floating through life and not able to um, have something to hold on to. So being told do this, it's almost like you can say, okay, I did that. Like I, I was active in that process as opposed to just not, not knowing, not having structure and not knowing what to do and not knowing how to do it. And uh, especially during those moments of really high grief, you're not really even thinking to yourself of what do I need or, or how can I, um, what, what do I even need to do for myself? So being able to follow a framework and to feel like you're accomplishing something and have some sort of locus of control is really important. And counting down to things, it, it gives you things to both look forward to and it can help the brain orient itself. Like I can get through this. And I'm also reminded of a quote that was made really popular by Viktor Frankl, who was in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. And he was quoting Frederick Nietzsche when he said, man with a why to live can get through anyhow. And the the structures um, can sort of give you a, a why, you know, they can give you a, why are we doing this? Or it can help you sort of just create meaning out of the the senseless because our brain is like, why is so important? Why are we doing this? Or why is this happening? And when we don't have an answer for why something happened, because it's just tragic, you know, or it's just life and it's just, you know, death and old age. It's not, even if it's not a traumatic crisis like this, um, it's still going to be the type of thing that the brain looks for control over. And it one of the ways that we can control something is just to give it a framework and to give it a structure. As we were chatting, the themes of storytelling and ritual kept coming back in, and I asked Amelia about their role in her life. Well, I would say story makes sense of the senseless. 
Um, and again, this, the storytelling we tell ourselves sometimes is our attempt to make sense of the senseless. And then ritual takes the ordinary and makes it extraordinary. It takes the mundane and makes it special, and gives it meaning, makes it meaningful. Um, and that storytelling piece is, you know, definitely was a big piece of my learning uh, how to be resilient in times of grief, and then also became the foundation for how I teach resilience to others, because a lot of our capacity to bounce back from adversities has to do with the stories that we tell ourselves, or the difference between someone who is resilient and someone who's not resilient can often be related to the story that one person is telling themselves versus what someone else is saying. So when my brother died, um, you know, I think that that came uh, unconsciously, I framed my story of his passing in a way that I needed to in order to be able to go on with my life and to be able to move on because I, uh, I ha so I have this this theory that uh, that the key to personal mastery in life is how we handle the two most fundamental questions that our brain creates, and these two fundamental questions are the most natural questions that we go to. Yet they're like sometimes the least useful questions because they're usually the questions that we don't have uh, answers to. And so I call it your whys and your what nexts. Because when you first face a traumatic experience or life event, the first thing that usually goes through people's mind is, why is this happening? And then the second question is the what next piece, which is usually around the question of what am I going to do? And so it's like, oh my gosh, why is this happening to me or to us or to my family? And then, oh my gosh, how am I going to go on? Or what am I going to do? Or how are we going to handle this? And that's the brain's most natural place to go to because of course it's trying to handle the situation. It's trying to work through the situation. But oftentimes we we don't have an answer for why is this happening, especially when it's, you know, a uh, senseless act of uh, violence is sometimes what people are faced with or just an act of God or nature that we don't have control over. And so when we're trying to say, why is this happening? Why is this happening? We don't have an answer to it. And yet, if we don't create an answer, you feel like you're not standing on ground. And so one of the things that, that religion often gives us is answers to the unsolvable questions that otherwise would not make us feel like we are standing on um, or that we're grounded. And so when my brother died and as a kid, I'm just sort of asking myself this question, like, why has this happened? I remember I would get, you know, get some interesting answers from adults in my, in my life, you know, or like, even if I wasn't asking the question, they would say things like, you know, just terrible, you know, good things happen, bad things happen to good people, or, you know, I'd have somebody say like, God needs more angels. And I'm like, I'm 14. And I'm like, okay, like, that's an interesting one. Um, so I just recall being 14 and recognizing that I didn't have an answer to why this happened. But I just found solace and peace in the idea or the possible thought that perhaps the reason that it happened was because it was my brother's time to go or his spirit knew. And so like a belief in spirit or a belief in a higher power just felt like it made sense and was able to help me create more peace in that moment. Um, and then I remember seeing how my father created his own story of what, of why did it happen? And my mother created her own story of why it happened and what would have happened if we hadn't gone away that weekend and all these other stories that people attributed to the experience. And so that was definitely like a pivotal point for me in understanding that the power of story and the power of 
religion to offer stories, but then also the power of us creating our own reality in our mind. And that when we don't have an answer to these things, that sometimes it's about finding peace of mind and just creating a story and sticking to it. Like, I don't know why this happened. I'm going to hold this story because it makes me feel more peaceful than constantly asking and, and, and filtering through the question, why, why, why? And then I asked her, with all that she's experienced and all that she's learned and taught others, what's the advice Amelia would send out into the world for approaching grief and loss? While her words can be intended for those who are grieving a death, we can give ourselves permission to understand grief and loss as an integral and active part of our lives. For many of us, 2020 into 2021 was marked with grieving our world as we had come to know it. Sometimes it takes naming that to begin to heal. The big one is that there's no right or wrong way to grieve, but it's so important that we do grieve. Um, and I think that there's a, I've been working with people um, now with just even like things, quote unquote, opening back up with COVID and some people just feeling like, oh, I'm not ready to go back to this new normal. Like there's still like this grief of the life that they had. Um, and so I think just grief can come through so many different stages in so many different ways for people. Um, and so I think like if I could, it's hard to just say once, I'm going to keep like three little short ones. So one is there's no right or wrong way to grieve. Two is it's so important to be able to know how to fully feel and to give yourself the permission to feel. I think that the only time that people go wrong in their grief process is when they don't know how to feel what they're feeling or how to digest their emotions. And so they numb and numbing is, you know, I think just the, the the trickiest one to recover from. So allowing, treating emotions um, as just in, as uh, signals and signal or what they really are in our body is signaling molecules. So they're trying to get you to pay attention. You know, you've lost something that's important to you. And when we fully give ourselves the permission to cry and to just breathe through what we're feeling and feel what we're feeling, we're able to complete the cycle and close the loop on feeling. But when we open these loops and we just try to numb them out, I think that's when we get ourselves into trouble. So I really want to encourage people to create outlets for themselves and, and create support and um, try to offer that to other people. I come from a Russian culture where feelings aren't particularly um, uh, celebrated. And, and if anything, there's often like a, a you know, sh 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 it's okay, it's okay, you know, um, when, when are a calming or trying to soothe people, but in trying to soothe them or their own discomfort with feeling we end up numbing people out or we end up disconnecting people from their feelings. So it's like, if people around you are grieving, like let them fully feel like welcome their emotions. And then the third one is just know that when grief is complicated and that emotions that are positive and negative can coexist. So when like, when my father passed away, there was tremendous grief and tremendous sorrow. And then there was an also another part of me that actually felt relief at the same time. And so I was able to feel the ease and the, 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 the exhale of relief while also feeling the sorrow and the sadness simultaneously. And the relief was just knowing that my father did have a number of pre-existing conditions and he had also been a cancer survivor. 
And there's just this feeling throughout my whole life of like any day now the cancer can come back or any day now something will go wrong that will cause perhaps a painful or difficult dying process for him that I would have to cope with at some point in the future. And this I, this just feeling like the worst is behind me now brought relief. And so knowing what I have known from having had grieved my mother and my brother, um, I just felt like I was able to honor that within myself and the complexity of feeling those things at the same time. Um, and the last thing I guess I'll, I'll just add in a fourth is also honor that sometimes grief can be compounding. So while I thought that I had done a pretty good job, like processing the loss of my brother and also my mother, you know, was spent a lot of time working with healers and doing somatic work and dancing and breath work and journaling and honoring their presence and just, you know, years and years of this, um, you know, my father's passing brought out a, a deeper level of grieving um, and grieving all three of them because it was, you know, it just seemed to be, it was interesting to go from I lost a sibling and a parent to I've lost my whole family. And so just recognizing that sometimes, you know, there's the, the grief is compounding and, um, and that it's not, it's not linear. It's not like, oh, you just grieve one person at a time and that it is just so different. I mean, and it cycles and each person will have a unique experience with it. It is the most natural thing that happens in life. It's that, you know, everything that lives dies one day. Um, and so at some point we all face it in some way, unless you pass before someone else does, and then in which case they have to deal with it too. Um, and we don't, we don't really honor how to go through this process um, or how to support others. And so really having those sort of conversations and learning grief as a skill set, the way that we would learn mindfulness as a practice or as a skill set, I think is really important. Thank you, Amelia, for opening a window to you and your story, reflecting and sharing in such a meaningful way. Do you or someone you know have a story to share? Or are there topics you'd want to hear me cover? Reach out to me, Sarit, through the website besideproject.org. There you will also find written posts, resources, and explorations of where Judaism meets death and dying. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.